as always, my name is Evan. I've been your host for the series, and we're really excited to keep this Q&A format going as well. So um, if you haven't been tuning in uh, last week, and I believe the week before that, um, we're trying to vary some of the topics that we're talking about. So we love having the different experts on, and we also love uh, preparing some presentations of Stride data that we think will be useful for people to view. And then we will answer your listener questions as well. So for anybody watching live now, please feel free to submit any questions you have either in the Facebook comment section if you're watching on Facebook or on the YouTube uh, chat box on the right-hand side of the screen if you're watching live on YouTube. You can also find this in audio form after the fact on the Stride Power podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Please feel free to subscribe to that and download any past episodes. We've had a lot of great people on and subscribe to keep getting future episodes, as well as if you find this stream enjoyable or any of our other YouTube videos enjoyable, please feel free to subscribe and like and turn on the notification bell so you can be alerted when we go live. So without uh, further ado today, uh, we're gonna be talking about perfect pacing or pacing perfection uh, with Stride Data at the Boston Marathon in 2019. Uh, like I mentioned, my name is Evan and I'm joined by Gus. Gus, how are you doing? Hi, Evan. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be back here and talk about a, a great race that uh, will hopefully be happening this year, preparing striders for excellent performances yes. at that race and for years to come. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the third Monday in April, we're usually very, very excited to celebrate Patriots Day in Boston at the Boston Marathon. Uh, we've been going, I don't know, how many years have we have we been going, Gus? Oh, three uh, going on four years now, I four believe. Years. Yeah, so it's a great experience. Uh, you know, for us, we get to be at one of the best races in the world, but it's a great experience for anybody that, uh, you know, is either there watching the marathon as well or running the marathon. So we're super pumped to talk about data from the 2019 Boston Marathon to help inform future decisions on race day and in training leading up to uh, future Boston marathons. So Without further ado, we will get into it. Topics. We're gonna to talk about the course. We're gonna talk about conditions for the 2019 Boston Marathon, how auto-calculated critical power factored into race day for stride users, good examples of pacing, and then some examples of pacing that leave tons of room for improvement, which is we like to look at things as, even if somebody doesn't have a race that you know they were expecting and they performed a little bit under their standards, we like to look at all examples, whether um, you know they're a super positive example or something that leaves room for improvement. We're gonna talk about metrics from race day and what separates different ability levels, elite race data, and then we're also gonna cover your questions. So like I mentioned at the top of the show, if you have any questions, please feel free to submit them and we will get to them by the end. So first, Boston 2019. Uh, like, like we mentioned, we love being there. We love interacting with people, as you can see in this middle photo. Uh, you know, Gus is the one taking photos with everybody. I'm here sitting on my phone in the background. Uh, Gus is doing all the hard work uh, at the expo. But one of the things, you know, that we were really missing out on this year was being in Boston earlier this week. It's a huge bummer because expos, we find, 
they're a huge valuable experience for us to learn from people that use Stride, but also give really, really helpful tips and just kind of communicate with people. Gus, what are, uh, what are your favorite parts of being at an expo, specifically Boston? Well, yeah, this is this webinar is the perfect opportunity to kind of replicate that experience where you mm -hmm. can give the feedback to us and you can ask the questions and you kind of really help drive the stride experience as being a part of the uh, webinar series and seeing us at events like Boston. So uh, we look forward to uh, you know answering some questions and uh, kind of replicating that expo experience. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I love the fact that after what the Boston Expo is three days, I believe. Uh, I can't talk because we've met so many people and we've talked through so many race plans and uh, just met so many great people at the expo. And then, you know, come race day, uh, we're, we're cheering our hearts out for everybody that's out there on the course. So um, really, really, really special uh, to be there. And we're really looking forward to future editions of the race. The course, um, this is something that people talk to us about all the time. It's, uh, you know, a thing that makes Boston special is the course. People typically talk about how it's a point-to-point -point course uh, and how there's a drop in elevation, which we'll talk about a little bit later. It's heartbreaking. It has uh, rolling hills, plus there's nerves and a change in routine. So Boston is a uh, mid-morning start. So usually in somebody's qualifying marathon uh, for, to, to be able to run Boston, they might have you know a 6.30 a.m. start, a 7 a.m. start. So uh, very, very used to starting early, but uh, at Boston, you know, it starts a little bit later in the morning. You have to deal with some of the elements like sun. You have to deal with the elements of waking up early, taking a bus all the way out to the start, um, you know, kind of standing around, sitting around. So there's a big change in routine. So the last thing you want to worry about is your race plan. You want to have a structured set race plan that you believe in. And that's, you know, kind of our main goal when we get to Boston is to give people an experience that they don't have to worry about. They just have to, you know, follow their training and they don't have to have that extra stress of race day, um, you know, kind of compounded with, with, the, uh, with, with, with the extra, you know, factors that are kind of thrown in. Gus, what do you think about the course? What are the things you usually hear about the Boston course that people talk about? Well, it's it's actually on the next slide, I believe. Let's mm -hmm. let's jump to the next slide, and sure. this, and let's jump to the slide after this. Even what I like to think about is these first four miles. I think this really makes or breaks someone's race. Mm -hmm. And there's one story in particular that stands out to me that I remember very clearly. It was a runner that actually lives around here in Boulder, mm -hmm. and he's traveling from a very high elevation to a lower elevation in Boston. Mm -hmm. And for a race like that, when you're traveling from a high elevation to a low elevation, you can sometimes raise up your power target mm -hmm. because you have access to more oxygen. And you can essentially run at a higher percentage or at a higher critical power. Mm -hmm. So he was saying, I think I can really go fast for this race. And I say, but but wait, I, I, don't, I don't think you want to go too fast because those first four miles, they're, they're very provocative. They're very challenging. They want you to run... The hills are asking you to run fast on them, especially yeah. when you're caught up in a large crowd. Um, but he said, uh, no worry. I actually practice uh, downhills a lot when I run in Boulder. I run on the trails a lot. So mm -hmm. I've got no worry about the, uh, the downhills. And he was actually right. He had a great understanding of his skill set. And he was able to pound right through those first four miles at a much higher percentage of critical power than, uh, than 
other runners could have because he was moving from that high elevation to low elevation. So mm-hmm. that's just one story I think of whenever I think about Boston, I think about those first four miles. Absolutely. Um, the running store I used to work at, um, you know, but before I moved on to Stride, we had the treadmill that simulated the Boston Marathon course. And the thing that, you know, people usually have a hard time with is since Boston is typically an April race, you have to train starting in the new year. You have to have that really focused training block when weather might not be very conducive to being outside. So this treadmill we had actually did that that negative incline. And so you got the practice running that. So it's it's very, very key. Boston throws a lot of challenges uh, your way. Specifically, yeah, talking about the first four miles, we'll have a couple different examples of people that did a great job and then people that have room for improvement for next time at Boston. So um, talking about the overall course, uh, we can see those first four miles. And then in the later stages, we see that it starts, you know, going through these rolling hills and they're, they're called the Newton Hills. So you have those first four miles that are very provocative to try and get you going out really fast, kind of bank some time, which as we all know is definitely a strategy that works in the marathon and never backfires. Uh, but you have heartbreaking hills, uh, literally heartbreak hill. Uh, and so actually on the uh, banners behind us, we got these for the expos that we go to. But uh, we actually uh, pieced out Heartbreak Hill um, behind us. So it's something that we keep uh, near and dear to our heart, not because it's only in uh, it, you know folklore for running, but because it's a real challenge. And it's something that if you practice staying consistent, it's something that can come to your advantage on race day as you blow by the competition uh, and everybody else that's kind of out there. So um, you know the, the main things we're going to kind of hammer home today are the first four miles and the last couple of miles, uh, just how the course has some varying changes. So uh, conditions, Gus, do you want to take us through the conditions of the 2019 Boston Marathon? Yeah, so the conditions were a big factor in everyone's mind, especially coming from the 2018 race, where Mm -hmm. it was very cold, very windy, and very wet. And, uh, you know, some people just did not want to take any chances at all. They were mentally prepared for just about anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, the race turned out to be very nice. Mm-hmm. It uh, it was just about near optimal. And I think everyone was pleasantly surprised at the conditions for that mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do remember, you know, talking to a couple people afterwards that it was a little bit more humid than people might have been used to. Again, it's that early uh, April uh, race. So just getting into springtime. So people training over the winter don't necessarily have as much experience with the high humidity. But if you, um, you know, don't go out too hard, it's definitely something that you can you can kind of battle through in the late stages. Uh, I remember being very pleasantly surprised because I was a spectator for this day. Um, the, the spectating weather was perfect. Uh, I do not think we could have asked for anything better in terms of uh, spectating weather. So yeah, these were the conditions. It was not a repeat of 2018, which everybody um, remembers, you know, all that, you know, wind and rain and very, very, very cold, uh, you know, mid thirties, upper thirties Fahrenheit uh, temperature. So conditions were pretty, pretty okay. Um, the first race with auto calculated critical power, I remember, um, you know, being on the plane and talking to people on the team about, you know, trying to put critical power, uh, auto-calculated critical power into effect for Boston. It was something we worked really, really hard on. Uh, the team worked really, really, really hard on uh, heading into the race. And this was the first time at an expo where we got to tell people, you know what? Hey, 
we have, you know, this method we think is really, really going to help you. Gus, what do you remember about uh, going through and uh, taking people through auto-calculated critical power for the first time? Yeah, so just a, a tad bit of history here. So uh, all of our new users are very familiar with auto-calculated critical power. It seems like a way of life now, but... <laughs> Back a year ago, we did not have this system launched yet. It was only private to us. Mm -hmm. So at the marathon, we were actually able to show people auto-calculated critical power for the first time and see if it was a better uh, indicator than their manually set critical power. Previously, everyone had to do a three nine-minute test, a three six-lap test to determine the critical power. And for this race, we were, a we were able to guide people based on auto-calculated critical power. And uh, the results were actually quite good. So yeah. Absolutely. So uh, typical recommendation, you know, that we normally give at an expo is somewhere between 89 to 91% of critical power is our typical marathon recommendation. And this is, you know, better in place now as a general recommendation, because we have auto CP and we feel like that gets, uh, you know, a little bit closer to what your actual fitness is. In the past, if you had a underestimated or overestimated critical power, you'd end up, um, you know, having a higher chance of being disappointed on race day by not hitting uh, your exact power target or maybe overshooting it or not having as much confidence. But with the introduction of auto-calculated critical power, we're able to get much, much, much closer uh, to where people were actually, uh, you know, being able to represent their fitness on race day. So um, keeping in mind that 89 to 91% of critical power is our marathon recommendation. Uh, for manually set critical power, this is what Stratus performed at for the Boston Marathon specifically. Um, so 86.7% of manually set critical power, and then auto CP got a lot closer to what we uh, typically recommend. Uh, again, that 89 to 91% uh, critical power. The other really powerful thing that I think here is how much better it gets, again, with predicted performance with fewer outliers. So the next two examples here are gonna show manual CP. So this is the huge range at which you can obviously see that in the middle, there's this big stack between you know 84 to 88%, but you have all these tail ends going down to 70%, all the way up to 105% of critical power. So with manual critical power, you have these big outliers and you, do, you don't really have that refined, refined goal. When all of a sudden we started uh, you know, helping people look at their auto-calculated critical power, things, you know, smushed together, really, really focused between that 88 to 91%, pretty much right in line with our 89 to 91% uh, recommendation. But you can see much, much fewer outliers compared uh, to uh, the, the manual set critical power. Are there any comments that you have about this, Gus? So yeah, I think, I think basically the, uh, the the point here is that Striders performed really well at this race because mm -hmm. the conditions were a lot better than they expected. And additionally, we were able to get better power targets Absolutely. at the Expo. So we see that people performed very, uh, essentially to their, to their maximal performance at this race with help Absolutely. of the power target. Absolutely. Um, cool. So we're going to talk about a couple different specific cases. Uh, and then I do want to uh, say... 
ahead of time that for everybody, the examples that we're using, uh, we, we did get permission uh, when you know looking through the data um, and we're keeping the data uh, anonymous. Uh, we have one elite athlete who has elected uh, for us to be able to talk about their data in particular, um, and that'll be at the end, but uh, everybody here is it's anonymous data. So um, yeah, just getting that out uh, ahead of time. So. First race example here is respecting the hills. Gus, what can you tell us from this race example? Yeah, so it kind of ties into some of the things that we've been talking about. So if you look at the bottom left-hand corner, mm -hmm. you see that at the very start, there's a steep downhill. And you see the power is actually very, very low. Mm -hmm. And this is something we are recommending to people that you want to start with the power target low for a few reasons. The first is to fight against those emotions and strong, um, the strong motivation to get out of the gate, and run fast, and get caught up in the crowd. If you start a little slower, you're not going to get caught up mm -hmm. in that crowd, and it's not going to push you along. And you see that for every every power spike, uh, it's quickly it's quickly respected. It's quickly respected the power of the hills, and that the power is quickly brought back down to a more reasonable level mm -hmm. so you can see that at the start those hills at the start and you can see the elevation in the uh, in the gray that the power is quickly brought out brought back down every time it's exceeding you can see the same pattern being reflected towards the end of the race yeah absolutely and then uh not only in that first four miles right but but continuing on through the rest of the course is really really recognizing uh, you know, those surges maybe where, uh, you know, it's really easy to get it caught up in a little bit of emotion as you're going through uh, the scream tunnel at Wellesley as you're, you know, kind of uh, getting closer and closer to the end uh, when mile 16 hits um, and you say, you know what, like, I feel great. I only have 10 miles left to go. Really, really respecting the course and acknowledging that, you know, there are rolling hills towards the end and you need to save a little bit. So, uh, this athlete in particular, negative split the race. So they're able to finish the second half faster than the first half. Uh, the first four miles specifically, I really wanted to highlight the discipline here. So sticking at 179, 193, 188, 180 watts for the first four miles, then being able to finish at 193, 203, 205, 202 watts. So really, really practicing that patience early on paid off awesomely for this athlete in, uh, you know, in, in their race. Was there any other um, comments that you had about the overall race for this athlete, Gus? No, I think that, I think that's good. I think that's good. I think it was a, uh, you know, staying under, underneath critical power as well. And that every time they searched over critical power, they quickly mm -hmm. recognized that and corrected that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the one thing I wanted to point out here too, to kind of, uh, you know, echo what you were talking about earlier is respecting the hills. So this is that same athlete, their first four miles. You can see specifically in the gray uh, lines here where those hills start to spike up and how the athlete kind of immediately responds. You know, it's okay to kind of, uh, you know, feel things out, especially in that early stages. But this athlete was very keyed into needing to back off the effort. So every time you see these little uh, orange arrows pointing to a point, it's where that athlete recognizes that they're going up a hill, their power is starting to spike, and then they gently bring it back down. And it's not a severe overreaction. It's a respect of the hills. So a great, great illustration of this athlete to practice that discipline specifically in the first four miles of the course. So uh, moving on to 
the second athlete here is reality versus aspirations. And it, this uh, specific point is respecting your critical power. Gus, what can you say about this uh, illustration uh, for this race number two for this next athlete? Well, yeah, the thing that jumps out to me is that they started out all right. They started out a little lower uh, than they had intended to run, which is good. But at that point, I imagine they got caught up in the pack and it was slightly downhill and they had established a rhythm, but they established the wrong rhythm. Mm -hmm. And that rhythm was too fast. And actually, they were they were nudging right up against that critical power um, right from the start. Mm -hmm. And I imagine they were feeling so good and they just thought this is this is normal. I'm going to have a great boss. And so they just kind of stuck with it. And then you can see that reality hit later in the race. And it looks like it specifically started happening maybe about halfway through. You can see there's one mm -hmm. downhill. And mm -hmm. when you go through enough of these downhills, it tears your legs up so much that when you try and establish your rhythm again on a flat ground or on an uphill, it's just impossible. It's just impossible. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, you've truly you've truly hit the wall. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, yeah, for, the, for this athlete, uh, the, the main take-home point that – we thought is yeah absolutely respecting you know that critical power you can see that line uh, there right at 305 watts for this athlete and so being above that for a large portion of time specifically for the first half of the race as it is mainly downhill it like Gus says it kind of you know uh, trashes your legs but also in a marathon if you go out in the first first half uh, it's it's gonna um, you know kind of pay back dividends uh, in a, in a negative way. Uh, later in the race, the athlete was able to, you know, finish what looks like the last, um, you know, 5K or two miles uh, and bring it back up. So uh, a good finish for this athlete, but um, respecting critical power specifically from the get-go is definitely something to do. Uh, race number three, this one I thought was a great, great example of combining a couple of these points. So uh, the, the first mile or two, we can see that the athlete, you know, started out pretty cautiously as they got into the rhythm. They definitely spiked above critical power, but they were able to kind of bring it back down. And once those first four miles were run, the athlete was able to run the next 12 miles. Amazing. So finding their groove. So from mile four to mile 16, you can see just how smooth this is. There are a couple spikes as the athlete negotiates some of these uphills. But the highest mile split in here was 3% above the average. The lowest split was 1% below their average for this whole 12-mile span. And they were able to just lock in to that range. And that's something that is hugely important, uh, specifically for this from 4 to 16-mile section. You want to negotiate, again, that really steep downhill first 4 miles. And you want to save enough for, uh, you know, the, the last... 10 miles and when you start to negotiate those hills but being able to get in a groove click off exactly what you practice in training and put it into effect on race day is what this athlete was able to show gus do you have any other comments for this race yeah can we go back to the sure. previous slide real quick sure so this uh this this race highlights a question we had in the chat from yariv who asked what percentage of critical power should you run a race at? Should it should you start at eighty nine percent? Should you move up to ninety one percent to finish? Is this should this be your average? Should you start much lower? 
And I think this race does a perfect job of yeah. illustrating that point. And that you can see for the first mile, the athlete started way below the race target. And this was tailored to this specific course. They knew that the downhill is provocative. They knew that the that there's a lot of fast competition who and a lot of people that might start out too fast. So they purposely started out way below their race power target and worked up to it. Mm -hmm. And they might have ended slightly below where they wanted to be at the end, but mm -hmm. uh, I think that was a smart decision because they were to search the final the final few miles and really finish strong. So you want to be averaging somewhere from 89 to 91%, and you kind of need to tailor your plan to the specific race. So that could involve starting lower. That could involve dropping your power down if there's a, a very, very difficult section like mm -hmm. there is here with the Newton Hills, and then saving just enough for a, a great triumphant finish. So, it, it you know, averaging 89 to 91%, but also uh, tailoring it to your specific race course and challenge is what we would recommend. Absolutely. And the, yeah, again, the main point uh, that, that I loved here and the, the thing I'd love to, um, you know, keep harping on for, for this point is just recognizing that, you know, for, for almost half this race, this athlete was able to, again, get in the groove and just make those miles go by without any negative consequences, right? Like they had um, what looks like three or four tiny spikes right up to their critical power and then immediately dropping back down to their range. It might seem, um, you know, very emotionally exhausting to keep surging back and forth in the middle of the race. But this athlete in particular, like Gus mentioned, was able to finish strong because they got in a groove during the middle of the race. They were able to just stick exactly to their goal. So um, the other point here is just that, that kind of consistency in the middle of the race. You don't want to, um, you know, have an average that might be the average you want, but have a mile that's 10% above and a mile that's 10% below, you want to keep things in a pretty fine band if you can. And so um, this athlete did a great job and I wanted to highlight specifically how they were able to stick in that range. So, um, okay to move on to the next one, Gus? I've got one more question I think we can sure. address here too from sure. Yvonne. He says, how does the athlete know if they're overpowering? Do they use alerts? Do they sense it? Do they glance at their watch? And when you find a groove like this, Evan, how, how are you looking at your power when you find a groove like the one illustrated here? Are you using the alerts? Are you looking at your watch? Are you are you sensing it, then checking it? I mean, what, what's yeah, your so um, I, I don't know for the, for this exact athlete. I, I, I did not get, um, you know, did not dig into it to find exactly what watch they were using. But, uh, you know, in the current state of things for the next edition of Boston, I think people will have a great advantage in the new Stride workout app. So being able to notify you when you're above and below a range and when you're sticking in your range, you could program, you know, the first four miles specifically at Boston. You want to stick to this sort of range and then move on to, you know, this range for the next 12 miles and then be able to start to, um, you know, give yourself a little bit of uh, more leeway as you move on to the later stages of the race with more hills. For this athlete, uh, I think the thing that we had out then was the stride power data field and you could set a lap average there i believe um i am a big believer in lap average as a 
you know, thing to use for races, but also um, the Stride Power Race app was something that was available for people to use. So you could set a notification for going above or below. So um, for this exact uh, race, I do not know the exact case, but um, there are a ton of great tools that we've continued to work on. You know, it's been a year since this example, and we have so many tools out there now um, that can really help you understand what to target on race day and then how to actually perceive that target um, to, to keep your chances of success as high as possible. Uh, I, I, I believe that answered that question. Absolutely. And I, I think you made, you hit on a very important point for a large majority of the race, you're going to be sticking directly to the power target. And then in the future, you might be able to do more advanced things with yep. the workout apps, such as customize your power target to meet the course. Yes. For example, if you're particularly strong climbing up hills and there's a long uphill section, you might set that mileage range to have a slightly higher power target. Absolutely. So, I think that's a fantastic point. I think we're going to be seeing more of that with the new tools we develop. Absolutely. Um, all right. Moving on to race number four. Remember the hills. Gus, what can you say specifically about race number four? So this race, I think, was was executed, you know, fairly well. I don't think it was. I don't think it was terrible. the The, the part that got bad though is they forgot about the hills at the end. Did that they didn't. Uh, they either didn't practice hill running deep into a long run. For example, mm -hmm. if you're preparing for Boston, you should be practicing hill running, you know, 18 miles into your long run to make sure you have those skills deep in the race. I think that's likely what happened here. You just didn't have the skills required to run the race. You had the fitness, but you didn't have the skills. Mm -hmm. And for, for people watching this, uh, watching the video format where you can see the example here, in the last about third of the race, it looks like the line starts to get a lot more spike and you have these drops. Uh, this represents when the athlete actually stops or when they stop and walk. So these lines that drop to kind of like that middle range, that's a walk break. And then they spike back up to running and they keep going up and down. But everything that drops down to the very bottom is them stopping. So that's something to uh, recognize when you see an example of data like here. Then for anybody listening to the audio version, uh, this video is extremely helpful just to illustrate some of the concrete examples that we have here. So if anybody's listening and they want to watch the video and see the video examples, I would highly encourage that as well on our YouTube channel. But yeah, like Gus said, you know, the, the first couple miles, they were sorted, you know, pretty well. There were some spikes above critical power. But the main thing that I wanted to highlight here is just how variable the power was here. So uh, very early spikes, pretty high, then pretty low immediately. So one of the examples early was staying in that kind of uh, middle range and not having too high of spikes, not having too low of spikes, and keeping the surge back and forth. So um, this room for improvement in the future would just be kind of leveling things out, maybe starting uh, off a little bit less aggressive and progressing through. But then, like Gus said, practicing hills. Um, you know, it's something, again, that's very unique to Boston, and you should absolutely train for that specific demand of the course. I believe there's a example here. Oh, no. So, uh, yeah, race number four, um, remembering the hills. The second half is harder than the first half. I feel like that's any marathon, right? Uh, people say the race starts at uh, 10K left to go, and that's like the second half of the race. But specifically in Boston, you got to know the course. Um, and that's that's something to kind of hammer home here. Any other points for this one, Gus? All right, that's good. Awesome. So race number five, wait for the crowd to break. 
this athlete specifically did a great job staying calm at the start. So uh, we, we've seen this in a couple um, you know, positive and also room for improvement data sets where on the very left-hand side here, that power's a little bit lower. The athlete reacts, you know, kind of has a little bit of a spike up. And what they do with that is definitely dependent on their nature. If it's somebody that, you know, has spent the first mile weaving through the crowds down this big downhill, you're just wasting so much energy trying to go side to side, trying to run faster and, you know, get back on your goal pace when you have to recognize the reality of the course. So like we talked about, um, you know, Boston has these wave starts. It's a point to point finish. And so you're going to have to deal with being patient in the first part. So this athlete did a great job specifically through, you know, this first half mile to full mile stretch of staying patient and letting that crowd open up before they start to get in their rhythm. They were able to negotiate, uh, you know, the race. They still have a couple spikes over CP uh, early in the race through halfway through the race, but they were able to finish really, really well. So um, I believe we have a, uh, illustration here. So again, staying calm at the start, you can see this athlete had the example specifically of staying a little bit lower, having only a couple spikes through that first four miles, getting in their groove. And then at the end, having a strong finish. So one of the things that I um, actually wanted to highlight here is this is the last mile. And uh, people that run Boston know the phrase right on Hereford, left on Boylston. And this spike right here for the athlete, uh, it was pretty funny as I was tracing through on Power Center, you can see where a specific point in the data lines up on the map. And this was exactly when the athlete made the left turn onto Boylston. And then, you know, you get that surge of adrenaline. You say, oh my gosh, I can see the finish. And then you realize you still have a little bit to go before you cross underneath the banner. But this athlete, because they started conservatively, they set themselves up to be able to finish well over critical power at the very end of a marathon. And that's what everybody wants to do. You want to set yourself up to have a great finish. You want to, you know, look great for the camera in the, in the last couple of meters. Uh, but this race, I thought, specifically gave a great example of how to start off cautious and preserve that ability to be able to close later in the race. Gus, do you have any comments on this example? I, I call it a I call it a triumphant finish. Uh, yes, triumphant Tri finish. Absolutely. Uh, we have a question from Patrick that mm -hmm. applies to this uh, data set specifically, and Patrick asks: Does it depend on the type of runner classification, such as speed demon, balanced aerobic monster? And he's referring to whether you should sl start slow or start close to the power target. And he notes that when he does a long run, he likes to start a bit slower mm -hmm. so he can really uh, kind of warm his body up and, and, and work his way up to the target. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for, for that stuff specifically, uh, I would say that if somebody has run a marathon, uh, you know, and maybe talking about this, this example specifically, uh, if you've run a marathon, qualified for Boston, you start Boston, uh, you, you should know how you probably best perform. If you usually like getting right out from the start and hitting that target immediately, that's great. Uh, if you need a little bit of time to warm up into it, like this athlete uh, taking their time to sort through the corral, through that first half mile to full mile, that's fantastic too. Uh, for the recommendation for you know the speed demon, uh, balanced runner aerobic monster, I don't think that necessarily factors in uh, too much here for the race calculator that just um, you know kind of 
looks at the, the drop off of your ability as the distance goes on. And so um, I, I think people would definitely be uh, a, a bit familiar with their tendencies as a runner, but um, I don't think our recommendations necessarily would change uh, for these strategies that we're highlighting based off that. Yeah, and my view is that the slow start or starting your power target, this is not going to have a major effect on your time. It really depends on your skill set and your comfortable, uh, your skill set as an athlete and how comfortable you are mm -hmm. uh, starting slow versus starting right at the power target. Uh, both strategies can be successful. You know, for the highest, highest performance, you want to keep the same power target from start to finish. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that might not just factor into everyone's uh, unique skill set. Yeah, absolutely. So this was race number five. Again, a calm start, and as Gus said, a triumphant finish. Uh, so, what does an elite runner's data look like? Like we mentioned, uh, you know, we have a specific example here. This is from Lindsay Flanagan. She is a current ASICS runner. She was on a great webinar with us uh, and her sister Kaylee just the other day. She finished ninth place at the 2019 Boston Marathon in two hours, 30 minutes, seven seconds. This uh, earned her a top 10 world marathon majors finish, which is absolutely fantastic at the highest level of sport, uh, specifically the Boston Marathon, because it's so historic. Um, she was right up there. Uh, she was the third American woman finisher, which is absolutely fantastic as well. So we have a screen cap of some of her data. So racing like an elite, this is going to be something that should show people uh, just a different type of strategy, but also a similar type of strategy as well. So the start, specifically for an elite athlete running a 230 marathon, placing ninth overall, that start was still very conservative. There was no sprinting out of the gate. It was settling into that nice early kind of feeling things out. But the thing that I wanted to highlight here that I found so fascinating is that this looks more like a fartlek interval run than just that strong, even pace, because when the athletes are at that very top level of the sport, they're racing each other. There's, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars on the finish line, there's sponsorship opportunities, there's the legacy and history of finishing top 10 in the Boston Marathon. And you want to do that, you want to finish first for your country. But the way that the power responds for an elite athlete, you can just see that it looks much more like a fartlek workout or a high intensity interval workout where you have these surges back down, surges back down. And so this is a great, great illustration. And specifically, there's this one point later in the race, and I'll put my mouse over it here, but at about 17 and a half miles right before the hills start to kick in, there's a very, very hard sustained push. So this isn't like any of the other kind of pushes we saw earlier in the race. It was a very, very hard sustained push and then back down. And Lindsay was able to reel in a couple people later in the race because she was able to have that fitness to race like an elite and surge, come back down, surge, come back down, and then end up finishing really strong place top 10. Uh, Gus, do you have any thoughts on what elite race data looks like from that year's Boston Marathon? Oh, I think it, I think it's fascinating reflecting on the data, especially if you watch the uh, the race on TV or mm -hmm. in person, and you see those surges the athletes are throwing down, and you recognize that you would personally never do that, but uh, you also understand that it's necessary in the moment if you want to um, mentally stay within range of a uh, 
a certain competitor. And now you get to see that reflect in the data that mm-hmm. even though there were surges, um, you know, elites really are running at a very steady intensity for most of the race. They just need to be ready at a moment's notice to uh, to hit the gas pedal and uh, drop competitors or keep up with competitors. Absolutely. And that's that's a lot of times what this is. So usually if somebody's watching an elite race, you typically only get, you know, a direct camera on people for 15 to 30 seconds up to a minute at a time. And then they cut away to something else. Even if you get a direct, you know, camera view, you're getting that front on camera view and you're just seeing them run what looks like a steady pace. And, you know, for these athletes, um, you know, for, for Lindsay, she ran 230 uh, flat pretty much in the marathon. And it looks like they're, they're going so effortless, but what you don't see is this yo-yoing effect. And you don't see somebody feeling good uh, at 17 and a half miles and deciding to push and the whole pack responds and goes with them. And if you don't at 17 and a half miles into the marathon, you have less than 10 miles left and you get dropped. That's goodbye to your chances of winning. And so any athlete that's there in that pack uh, starting in the last half believes that they can win. Um, And so this is just fascinating to me to see this, you know, uh, almost like a fart, like run or a interval type run during a race for 26.2 miles. But Lindsay really showed that she was an elite because she was able to stick right at, um, you know, above her critical power, uh, even towards the end there too. So um, super fascinating. Uh, Very, very, very cool to see. Gus, do you have any other comments on this data? I think that's great. Awesome. So uh, time for some fun. So we uh, did a survey after the Boston Marathon in 2019 and just asked people um, to tell us a little bit more info about your race. And then we dove into the data a little bit. And uh, we're just going to present some kind of metrics that we found kind of fun. It's not necessarily something we're diving super deep into, but it's something that uh, is fun for analysis. So shoes. Uh, This is a big, big, big pie chart showing the different variety and shoes that people reported that they wore. Uh, so you can see things from Adidas, Ultra, Asics, Brooks, Hoka, uh, Topo, Saucony, Reebok, um, some Nikes. Uh, and then people might be saying, wait, where are all the magic carbon plated shoes? Because this was a you know a big thing even a year ago is people talking about uh, you know the Nike 4% shoe. Well, when we add that shoe specifically in, it changes how the graph looks. So, um, you know, the striders that reported, uh, you know, the, the data to us afterwards, about 40% of them uh, wore the Nike 4%, uh, just out of the people that reported back to us. And then the other about 60% um, wore a mix of other different shoes. So pretty interesting to see. I, I like seeing the difference in before adding in that 4% category and then afterwards. I, I think it's pretty uh, pr- pretty funny to see. Any, any comments on this from you guys? Yeah, so one of the questions we get a lot in the community is um, how should I design my race power target and do certain shoes help me produce more power? And what I always recommend is you want to try and simulate race day as much as possible in training. So not only do you want to be practicing running hills for the Boston Marathon, but you also want to practice running those hills in the shoes you plan on wearing and conditions you expect on race day. And your power target is not going to shift wildly because you wore one set of shoes over another, but it might shift slightly. And that could be for primarily just due to the fact that you're comfortable running faster Mm -hmm. or you're comfortable running faster for longer in a certain pair of shoes. So when you're designing a power target, you want to you want to factor in everything. You want to factor in the shoes, the course, the weather. That is the way to perfect pacing. Absolutely. Just, again, taking a 
all the variables that could offer complications out and uh, making them kind of turn positive uh, for you. So I thought this was fun. I always like looking at shoes too, um, but it's always very uh, humorous to me to see the, the different breakdown and stuff. So um, last one we have here is just a very general overview for a couple different uh, time ranges. So for the athletes that were sub 230 versus the athletes that ran 240 to 245, 255 to three hours, 305 to 310, 315 to 320 on race day. Um, I just wanted to give a little bit of a summary of the difference between their watts per kilogram for their actual race power, their running effectiveness, which is their meters per second versus their watts per kilo, the form power ratio, LSS per kilogram and ground contact time on average. So um, not necessarily surprising that the athletes that ran under 230 for the marathon had what the highest watts per kilogram and you can see it kind of falls as uh, the time ranges extend running effectiveness uh, again there's not too too much variety in here uh, the form power ratio there's not too much variety between 240 and uh, you know 310 the athletes that ran sub 230 had uh, a little bit better form power ratio overall a little bit lower overall um, leg spring stiffness kind of follows that same trend. You'll see the uh, 240 to 245 group had a slightly higher LSS per kilogram on average for the data set that we got. Um, and then things follow a similar trend. And then ground contact time, uh, it followed, again, another similar trend. So people that ran the fastest had the lowest ground contact time on average. Uh, and then extending that out versus each time, uh, you know, block goes up, the ground contact time goes up a little bit higher. So should be pretty intuitive, should make sense, but I thought it was pretty cool to put a little bit of a, a display here just to show people some of the differences. Do you have any comments on this one, guys? So this was the previous generation stride. This is before we released the new stride, just to keep the timeline in check, because it seems like uh, so much has happened in the last <laughs> year since we were last at Boston. So yep. that's why the RE figures are so high the RE high. figures will be slightly lower once mm -hmm. you capture the air resistance effect mm -hmm. and otherwise I think, I think it's pretty self-explanatory i mean these these metrics are all great to monitor improvement if you can monitor these metrics and they're improving then you know that you're essentially moving up towards faster times they're all indicators absolutely and yeah this isn't uh necessarily a benchmark that somebody has to hit, not saying that if you don't run 4.8 watts per kilogram, you're not going to run under 230 on the Boston course specifically. Uh, and if you don't, you know, eclipse four watts per kilogram, you're not going to, you know, break three hours on the Boston Marathon course specifically, but it's kind of cool to, to see some of the differences in, in the data and just see some of the uh, different illustrations there. So we could, uh, you know, definitely dive into more statistics in the future. Um, you know, future webinar presentations. But I thought this was a fun little summary and it's uh, something that, you know, we don't get to show off too often, but I, I think it's a fun thing to look at. So um, last part here is your questions. Now is uh, gonna be a call for any general questions that people have. Gus and I would love to answer them for anybody that is curious. Uh, so please feel free to put them in the chat on the right-hand side if you're watching on YouTube. Leave it as a comment in the Facebook stream as well. And if you're watching this after the fact, um, please absolutely feel free to drop a comment on either the YouTube video or the Facebook video. Our team will see that. 
And then uh, if you are watching this after the fact as well, I would definitely encourage people to click subscribe on our YouTube channel, give it a thumbs up, uh, share it if you found any of this sort of content useful. So Gus, do we have any other questions from the audience? Yeah, we do a few nice comments and questions. Uh, Luis Fernandez says, I've already ran Boston twice. He is looking forward to run it again this September, and he is focusing on power this time. So we look forward to seeing you at the expo, Luis. We will be there and uh, help you design a perfect race power target for yourself. We have another question from Deep Jeezers, and yes, is the 89 to 91% percentage of critical power recommended for only marathon? or higher percentage ranges recommended for shorter distance races. So how would you respond to that, Evan? Yeah, um, and when we give a recommendation like this, uh, it, it's pretty general. Um, so we have typically found that specifically for the marathons that we go to, um, you know, Chicago, New York, Boston, uh, that 89 to 91% fits a lot of cases. That is going to be a very general range that most people can perform at, uh, you know, for the marathon distance. It is definitely going to be different, again, if somebody is, you know, competing for a top 10 spot versus somebody, you know, trying to finish uh, the whole run in one go without walking. For this general recommendation, again, it's something that we find works for a lot of people, but based off every individual's case, uh, it could be slightly different. You know, somebody might be 90 to 91% might be their best instead of 89 to 91. You might be able to shift it up a percent, shift it down a percent, have a little bit wider range, depending on what course you're running at as well. So um, it's something that we find as a general recommendation, uh, 89 to 91%, I'd say. There is a, another question here. So uh, Helder Rodriguez, who we saw at the New York City Marathon, uh, he asks, uh, imagine what we will see with the new generation stride. Air power is such a great tool. Yeah. And specifically, I think some of the things that you can, that we will be able to pay attention to is, it's going to depend a bit on the race conditions, but if we have a very windy race, mm -hmm. or especially in that 230 group, I'd love to see the effect of uh, drafting, drafting, the effect of air resistance created by running speed. Once you're moving at you know sub 230, you're, you're actually traveling very, very fast, and mm -hmm. some of your power might be used to overcome air resistance at that at those speeds. So I think we're going to see have a tactical angle on that. I mean, we'll have to see. We haven't had uh, we haven't had a lot of major races since we released the new stride mm -hmm. and once we have more we'll, we'll we'll definitely have more data and we look forward to sharing that yeah absolutely and it's something that uh you know people should definitely uh you know look, look forward to is once the time comes that we can put the you know races back on the calendar is being able to enact all these strategies uh specifically for you know, reducing the, the power cost for air resistance and being able to tuck in that pack and draft and just, um, you know, take the most advantage that you possibly can on race day. We have a question from Patrick Smith. And can we go back to the previous slide? Sure. So Patrick asks, do you have any idea on the outlying leg spring stiffness per kilogram for the fastest group, the, uh, the sub- the 230 to 240 group. He's asking, 
what is the outlying LSS per kilogram? So you actually see leg spring stiffness per, per kilogram slightly dips at the faster speed. Mm -hmm. And this is something you will see. It's kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a inverse U-shape relationship. Um, at certain speeds, you have a highly optimized leg spring stiffness. And if you start running faster, the leg spring stiffness starts to drop. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a natural, um, a natural part of the data. And there, there's probably some biomechanical explanation for this that I wouldn't be able to um, confidently explain here. But yeah, the the only thing that I could think of without um, you know pouring too too far into the data would be um, you know again recognizing that this is data strictly from the Boston Marathon course in 2019. And the Boston course, again, is very different compared to other courses. If we looked at data um, like this, you know, from Chicago, from New York, from uh, Berlin, London, Tokyo, you know, some, some of the other majors that might have different course profiles, uh, you know, less uphills, less steep downhills, and it, we might see some of these uh, change a little bit. But yeah, um, the, the, the overall trend is, is kind of similar there as you move up in the overall duration, uh, you're, you're going to potentially have a, a lower LSS per kilogram, but, um, you know, for, for some of these people specifically, again, looking at Lindsay's data, uh, sometimes they were surging on the flats, which, uh, you know, ground contact time is a, um, you know, very big, uh, driver for LSS. And if somebody's surging on the flats, reducing that ground contact time versus running a lot of uphills, having that ground contact time be a little bit higher, that LSS might dip. Um, but it is pretty interesting, uh, to look at. And again, this isn't, uh, you know, pouring over the data. I'm sure we could probably explain things a little bit more, but it is very interesting to see and could be an interesting comparison, uh, compared to different courses for the same, you know, Watts per kilogram output, uh, even the same athlete running on the, the same courses over time. So we have a question from Marius asking, what are your thoughts on negative versus positive splits for a race? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, pretty much every world record in, in track, except for, I believe, um, you know, the, the distances under 800 meters uh, are set by negative splitting. So finishing the second half faster than your first half. Um, personally, I think that negative splitting is a lot more fun and you end up feeling very good about your race rather than, you know, kind, kind of riding that red line all the way to the very end and um, not being as satisfied and leaving yourself guessing what could have been if I would have paced a little bit better. So um, overall thoughts is mentally for me, it would be more fun to negative splits. I think looking at a lot of research um, and a lot of other past performances from people that are able to perform at the highest level of sport, uh, negative splitting is definitely something that is probably a more optimal strategy rather uh, than when you're trying to, you know, do something, whether you're trying to set a world record or set a personal best or even set a season's best. Uh, it's something that you should still uh, kind of reinforce is that, that, that negative split side. Well, yeah, one, one additional point there in that it's actually, it's, it is a negative split, but it's only by maybe one or two seconds for a lot of those world records. From, yes. So from very that. even though. Yes. It's, it's actually perfectly even is what you want to be aiming for. And that is achievable when you have stride and mm -hmm. you can't really think about Boston in terms of negative or positive splits due to the course profile. Yeah. But 
one half is always going to be a different time than the second half, than the other half because mm -hmm. of the way the course is laid out. So really, you want to aim for the perfectly even power splits. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And we have a question from Victor Rubio asking, what is the power percentage to run a 5K or 10K race at? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we gave, again, that kind of general recommendation there uh, of for the marathon, that 89 to 91%. Um, if you go to stride.com slash guide, we have a full guide there, and we have a couple uh, different um, you know, listings for race power targets, depending on the distance. So um, the distances in our table there right now are based off your 10K power. So if you do run a 10K, uh, your 10K power will obviously be 100% of that. Your 5K power will be about 3 to 4% higher than your 10K power. And your uh, half marathon power will be um, about 94 to 95% of that 10K power. Uh, so it, it, it definitely depends again on the athletes, your, you know, ability, your, your, your speed overall. Um, but generally for 5k, it's going to be three to 4% higher than that 10k power. And then for that 10k power, it's going to be, um, you know, a couple points, uh, about four to 5% above that half marathon power. We have a question from Mark Ernst. Mm -hmm. Did you do analysis of the power percentage achieved with different shoes? In power percentage means what it, What exactly? I believe Mark is referring to the critical power percentage. And I'd like to, I'd like to hit on a point I made earlier mm -hmm. where you're not going to see your power target shift by all that much from a change of different shoes. You might see a change at a maximum of a few percentage points. And that's going to be dependent on the athlete. And there is uh, there is a lot of great research out there on the different shoes. Some athletes just respond better because there's a nice biomechanical coupling between the shoes. So some athletes will respond better to certain shoes. Some athletes will respond worse to certain shoes. Yep. And or not respond at all. And it just depends on personal feeling too. So, so we – we could put that table together, but you probably see that there's not a consistent or conclusive uh, a conclusive result from that table. Yeah. Uh, we have another question from Mark where he asks, are there age adjusted, age, age adjusted data differences? Mm -hmm. I run at 4.0 watts per kilogram. With my age, I can never hit those times. Mm -hmm. So. I think the thing to note here is were those were those watts per kilogram at critical power or those watts per kilogram during the marathon? Yeah, this was the actual reported uh, watts per kilo from the actual race data. Um, so for uh, again, this is just some of the cool stats. Uh, I, I'm sure you know if we wanted to do um, a follow up a little bit later, maybe as we head into uh, you know Boston later this fall is uh, talking a little bit more about some of the specific data and some of the trends that we found. Uh, from part of the survey responses that we did collect was age for people who were willing to share that. Um, so this is absolutely something that we could put together. Uh, and then also versus you know their um, auto critical power watts per kilo at the time. Uh, versus their age, versus you know what shoes they were wearing, we could absolutely um, you know kind of put some stuff together. Uh, right now, yeah, this was just kind of a very top level uh, kind of fun look at the data. So one thing to note there, there, there's actually not a need for an age adjusted difference. If you can run at 
a certain watts per kilogram, you're actually gonna be very close to this time band. The only thing that's gonna differ is your running effectiveness or your form power ratio. Those are the primary things that are gonna change and that will slightly affect your time, but you will be close to these bands if you can hit those watts per kilogram. Yep, totally. We have a question from Christian who asks, I'd love to see a webinar on adapting pre-existing training knowledge, such as knowledge from another book and applying that to running power. Yeah. And I think that would be a fantastic episode. One thing I would note that you can do is if you head to our support page and search for training plans, mm -hmm. there's actually some documents you can download that apply some pre-existing training knowledge and adapt that to power. So if you want to get started now and start learning, there, uh, there are some there are some guides there. And I, I'll, Evan, I'll let you continue, yep. and I will uh, try and pull that up and put that in the chat. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so one of the other things, um, yeah, I, I think it's super interesting is as uh, you know, power gets, you know, more and more incorporated into different training strategies. We're really, yeah, excited to talk more about that as well. Um, cause there are, you know, some basic tenants, uh, that you can take from different training platforms, whether it's having a specific goal, right? So let's say my specific 5k time and my pace based training plan requires me to run this pace. You could figure out your specific you know, power goal and train to that specific power. Use the same workouts because uh, just because you're focusing on power-based repeats versus pace-based repeats, it doesn't mean that you have to throw out the whole training plan, but it's absolutely something um, I think that would be, yeah, very, very, very interesting. Maybe something that we could put on the list, Gus, for the future for a webinar. Um, and if anybody ever has any uh, suggestions, something that they're really fascinated by, something they want to hear more about, you can absolutely always email us at support at stride.com um, and it'll get, get sent to our team and we'll be able to review that and pass it on as a suggestion. We have a question here that's asking what percentage of my critical power should I run an Ironman marathon at? I did Boston in 2019. My average power was 315 watts. Yeah, um, I'm trying to pull up. Uh, Chris Haig had a great infographic, I believe, right, um, about percent of CP that you should use. Uh, and he has a triathlon race planning uh, web series that we did back in 2018 uh, with him, and that that's great. Um, specifically, what was the what was the question? So, what percentage of my critical power can I hold for an Ironman marathon? Yeah, let me. Here, one second here. So while Evan looks for that, uh, we will put that in the chat. I'm going to move on to the into uh, a few other points here in the chat. Uh, Peter says, great webinar. Thanks, guys. I've run Boston 11 times, and I totally agree with the conclusions. Start slow, find your groove, respect the hills, finish strong, and triumphantly. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we're, we're thrilled to hear that. Thank you, Peter. We're uh we're, we're thrilled to hear that we're giving uh, good recommendations here. So Gus, if you want to, uh, I, I shared my screen here uh, and you should be able to see this. So this is something we have on our page. It's what should my Ironman run power target be? Um, so if you just search Ironman run power target stride, it should pull up. Uh, we can put this in the show notes as well for this specific question. So let's say again, yeah, we're looking at a 70.3. Is that correct? We're looking at a full Ironman marathon. Okay, full. And let's say, uh, are you feeling like a strong biker or a weak biker, Gus? 
Uh, I I am a uh, I am a weak biker. Okay. Are you a strong runner? Um, I am a strong runner. Okay. Then for you, we'd say just off of this general table here, eighty percent of your critical power should be that target. Uh, we can obviously see that for the full distance, if we're a strong biker and a strong runner. 83 to 85%. Uh, and for this half, we have these different considerations. Then Chris also puts in here that you should you know, go off of your experience level if you're a first timer, more experienced uh, based on the conditions as well. So focus on hydration and nutrition. If there's wind, if there's heat, just know how these affect your ability to perform. So this is a great one. Uh, we can absolutely put it in the show notes as well. Um, I'll, I'll leave it up here. Uh, but this is something that absolutely, I think, answers the question and gives a kind of fun, interactive way to look at it as well. All right. The next question we have here is from Lubos, and I, I hope I am pronouncing this right. <laughs> he's a great, he's a great supporter, and he's been part of many webinars. I just don't know if I'm saying his name right. Are you planning to add specific workouts under the suggested workouts in power centers? So this is referring to the training distribution feature on the new power center. This is to the right side of the power duration curve. You can select on a skill and you will be given selected workouts. Mm -hmm. Workout types right now, I believe. Workout types. So I think we're going to have some fantastic workout suggestions coming with a lot of the training plan related features that are on the way. Yep. Um, other than that, we have looks like one or two final questions sure. to measure my improvement. Should I compare watts per kilogram to pace? Yeah, I think that's. Um... You know, it, it's actually a question we get a lot, uh, and specifically when people bring up the metric that we were looking at um, earlier, running effectiveness. So meters per second versus your watts per kilogram. Um, the thing that we like to remind people is uh, if we're looking at measuring improvements, typically we have to keep the variables the same. So ideally, this would be on the same course in similar conditions, um, you know, a, a similar amount of air power, if you have you know a super windy day versus a very calm day or let's say you know you, you do a downhill stretch um, and you have the wind at your back versus an uphill stretch with the wind in your face that running effectiveness uh, you know based off power to pace relationship is going to be way off and it's not necessarily going to show you um, the improvements that might be there so making sure you keep that in consideration is something that we definitely advocate for we have a question from Yariv. Where can I find a list of all the Stride acronyms? Yeah, uh, so we do have a stride.com slash guide. I believe that defines a lot of them. Um, maybe we should uh, talk with the team and put a uh, sort of, um, you know, what, what do you typically call it? It's uh, like the yeah, de definition of terms uh, at, at the end of a book or something like that, an, an index of terms. Glossary, so, glossary. Gloss, or, yeah, gl glossary or an index or something like that. So um, yeah, maybe we can uh, talk with the team. The one thing that I would say, uh, I feel like I've been plugging this podcast episode uh, for, the, for the past couple of weeks is if you go to stride.com slash podcast, where you just search the Stride Power Podcast, if you find episode three, it's understanding power meter metrics. Um, that's a place we do define 
uh, some of the uh, acronyms there and, and what the metrics actually mean and what you can kind of look at the metrics for. All right, one one more question. This is the big question on my mind. What's the webinar coming up next week? Next week, we're going to have uh, Sean Bearden from Science of Ultra. Uh, next Tuesday is the date looking out um, for that. If anybody's watching now, uh, I believe we'll put a link in the description or a link in the chat even to uh, sign up to be on the newsletter for the reminders. So if you've been getting the, uh, you know, the emails saying, hey, this is going to be the webinar, we'll be absolutely um, you know, giving you the webinar recaps and giving you the webinar previews for the, the next schedule. Um, for this next week, we're going to be doing Tuesday and then uh, Friday again. So we're going to move to a two a week um, for, for, the, for the time being going forward. Uh, excited to still bring the content, but spread things out a little bit. Um, we're still going to be doing uh, this type of webinar later in the week, but uh, early next week, uh, Sean Bearden from Science of Ultra. All right, fantastic. If anyone is uh, viewing this webinar and they are not a Strider yet and you want to start collecting Stride data, now is the perfect opportunity. If you start collecting Stride data now, you can be ready for Boston 2020. So you can head over to store.stride.com and we do have Stride in stock. So uh, like I said, now is the perfect time to start collecting data if you want to be running with power for the Boston 2020 race. Awesome. Uh, cool. Well, this wraps up this episode. We're so excited to be here again. If anybody has any other questions, please feel free to drop them in the comments uh, after the fact, and we will absolutely answer them. Uh, for now, we'll be back next week. My name's Evan. I've been here with Gus. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we will see you later. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.